It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Sego Ani, bonjour. I am Kathy Sabokin, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm filling in today for David Moses. And my first guest today is Sandra Laronde. She is founder and artistic director of Red Sky Performance. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Now, I was just going through your dance and other arts background, and the resume was so long, I had to pull it up on the internet. And, oh my gosh, I can't, it's so many things you've accomplished. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. And you have a new show on right now at Berkeley Theater in Toronto. So let's just dive into that a little bit. How do you describe it? Um, so it's called AF, and it's at Canadian Stage. And uh, it's, our, it's our newest piece. It's, it's highly physical, and it's really experimenting more with um, physical storytelling. And, of course, it's live music, as we always do, and, and the music is just incredibly beautiful. And it's about uh, the seven Anishinaabe fire prophecies. And I was really interested in looking at our prophecies as Indigenous peoples, and uh, what that could look like if it was rekindled in the human body. And so it's looking at those prophecies. What are the seven Anishinaabe well, they're not, prophecies? It's not, it's not just like one this and two that. It's not quite like that. It's a whole story. It's a, it's a journey. But ultimately, the, uh, the seventh fire, which is um, some say we're in the seventh fire and some say we're in the eighth fire, but it's really... By fire, they mean an an era or a, an epoch. Um, so it's uh, a period of time. And we're at this point now, which was prophesized, where there would be two paths that we need to go down. One, uh, a bright path, and one, uh, a dark, a darker path where there's, where it's charred. And it's, um, so it, when I think about sort of what's happening in Australia, even what's happening with, you know, within Canada and the incredible amount of fire to everything, yes. you know, it, re- it really makes sense. And um, so they talk about those two paths in the prophecy. So, but the first thing that we had to do was to move from the West, uh, I should say from the East, and then go closer towards the Great Lakes. So that's what we did. So there's a bit of a travel that we had to do. All of this in a dance. That's incredible. Well, yes. We're, we're, we're not being literal, though. No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> body. Story is physical, yes. body in motion, telling yeah. a story, yeah. which is amazing. Now, I'm fascinated by these prophecies. And was there a prophet? How, how did seven. they come? Seven. There were seven actual prophets. Yes. And where were they based? It's not, they're not uh, human necessarily in human okay. form only. Okay. Um, yeah. So they, it, uh, things could come. I would say, for example, like one of the th- one of the guides according to the Medewin Lodge of the Anishinaabe is um, is actually a shell that was kind of the guide. And then when you think about it, it's not, uh, you know, in another culture they might call it the Holy Grail. Right. That they're following a cup. And when you say it to people, they go, what? They're following a cup? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, but this is about, is this is a, a shell and um, and there's so much to it. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely no expert on all of it, but we are learning. We had, uh, 
Senator Murray St. Clair come into our dance studio Incredible. for like three hours Incredible. and talk with his beautiful sonorous sonorous voice that he has. Yes. And Lee Miracle came in. and uh, we've, we've had Lee on our show. She's, Terrific. She's lively. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And uh, we've been very fortunate with the kind of people who stop by our studios when we're creating work. Katie Lang or, you know, it's just been really wonderful. But to have Senator St. Clair there uh, was just extraordinary. Why did he show up? Why did he visit? We invited him last minute. I had heard he was in Toronto. um, And I asked uh, he and Lee to come into the studio. And she said, well, we can't make that time. I said, we can make any time. Believe me, whenever he can get here, we're, we're ready to go. And so he came in the morning instead, and he had to leave that day. So it was yes. great. Did he have words of wisdom? He or did. What did he, he has say? a lot of wisdom. Yes. And so does Lee. They, they're yes. wise elders, really. Yes. Um, he talked about, uh, you know, what the prophecies are about so much, too, about, you know, um, um, our connection to uh, land or the environment, whatever, whatever we want to call it, ecology. And how um, spiritually based everything is and how everything is very much alive. And I completely believe that wholeheartedly. And um, he talked about um, the, he was saying what I thought was interesting. He said, it's not so much the journey from one fire to another, which means those periods of time, but it's, or to get from, you know, what's happening in the fire. It's all in between the fires that are very interesting in terms of the journey. And um, so, of course, tying that to truth and reconciliation was uh, really interesting to me. And, um, yeah, and um, I would love to spend and hear more from him, spend more time with him and listen. But um, it was just so nice. I really believe in bringing um, elder wisdom into any project that we do because they give this whole other perspective that we may not be thinking at this period in our life for some reason, or we are, but they might say it even more succinctly or with more sort of context and lived experience that makes it so impactful. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So I love that part Wonderful. Of, mm-hmm. Now, would you say that you have any political undertones to your to the dances that you choreograph, have choreographed? You know, I get asked this question um, every time, and um, (laughs) my answer is: uh, I don't intend to be political. I'm not being going. I'm not going out of way to be political. I am just, but just by the virtue as an indigenous person, an indigenous company telling our stories, we're inherently political. As soon as we say we 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 are connected to land, oh, that becomes a political statement. Here we go. Yes, you know. So it's just. Being born Indigenous in this country, you're, politi- you're political. So that's just the way it is. You it's know? just the way it is, and you accept it. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about your Indigenous background. Well, I'm from the uh, Timigmon Anishinaabe, so from Tomogamy, Northern Ontario. Mm-hmm. People love the deep water and uh, extraordinary, beautiful place where I'm from. And I came to Toronto to go to university and then kind of stayed and started a business here. A few businesses in Red Sky is the most recent one. And um, yeah, so home is uh, 1,600 islands, uh, 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers of shoreline, Ooh. and 500 people. It's, oh my goodness. More islands you, than so you people. You grew up with 500, a community of five. What's that like? 
It was, you know, it made you extremely, it made me an extremely physical person because I was always outdoors because nature was so beautiful. The water was right there to jump in. I mean, the, the, we didn't have, um, like, um, hot running water. So we had well water. We didn't have, um, and so we never had, um, was this boil water? No. Okay. No, no. Don't get me going See, on that. Or even water's political. See, even water's political. <laughs> Especially when it's connected to indigenous. Anyone living in Canada should have access to clean water, period. So we would just, anyway. it would just, and then the woods was right there. So incredible terrain to grow up to. I'm telling you, feeds imagination in a completely different way. Well, where did you learn to dance? When did that come up? Like you, that, you had a sense of it just being in nature and then what? Um, I don't know about being in nature and dancing, but I was definitely um, extremely um, sporty. So always playing sports, as we are in um, small towns. <laughs> We're all very good athletes in small I'm towns. Sure, yeah. Because primarily that's one of the only things we have to do at a certain age. And then um, competed in a lot of sports. Um, and then when I came, and then I've always loved to dance. I mean, my mother loved to dance too, and I love to dance. My whole family's extremely musical and talented. And so I grew up with a lot of live music as well. And so my two loves, of course, live together, live music and dance and, and physicality. So, And then the physicality I like is very, very uh, physical. Um, you know, um, it's dance that's very physical. So, uh, and then I went to dance um in Toronto, a little bit here and there, and then primarily at, in Banff. Um, I did a lot of dance in Banff, uh, at the Banff Centre. Yeah. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app and our website, elementfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M.ca. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and I'm filling in today for David Moses, and I'm here with my guest, Sandra LaRonde, founder and artistic director of Red Sky Performance. Well, you have to say hi to David Moses for me. I will say hi. He can't <laughs> be here today. He's off for the week. Okay. Now, just tell them, tell us about your dance company, Red Sky Performance. Is it more than dance? More than dance, we are a movement. A movement. Movement. Oh, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We're more than dance. We uh, we do so. It's live music. It's uh, um, as you. I'm talking about, you know, elder wisdom in there. We're talking about in connection to land. We're talking about so many elements of culture, and uh, so yeah, we are more than dance. We are a movement. Um, so Red Sky started. Uh, it's 20 years old now, and we have created a lot of things. Uh, orig- all original work. We have been to uh, big landmark things like the Venice Biennale and two Olympic Games, Beijing and Vancouver, open for World Expo in Shanghai. And then we have created work where we can go into schools and into communities um, on reserves with two lighting cues off and on. Oh, and what's that like? (laughs) What's that like? Oh, it's so extraordinary. Children and community. uh, In some ways, it's, it's the impact is so great. Because sometimes for the first time they're seeing professional dance or, I mean, in terms of contemporary, because they might see powwow and that right, is professional right. too, yes. but in a very different way. And so uh, the impact is really, really powerful. And I love to see their little eyes light up and their imaginations and have the questions, really smart questions that they ask. 
because we create uh, shows also for children. But what's at Canadian Stage is a show, uh, is a show, a family, uh, adult, more adult leaning show. Um, yeah, so we're so we've been a company in residence at Canadian Stage for the past three years. We did Backbone there in 2017 and Trace in 2018. I saw Trace. It blew my mind. Oh, it really, it was you. so beautiful. Thank you. I mean, I actually stopped breathing for a while. I'm like, oh, it was so beautiful. Mm. It's just, I really encourage everyone to go see AF. Right? Mm-hmm. AF. Does that stand for anything? Anishinaabe Fire. Anishinaabe Fire. Yeah. Just cut it down, cut to the chase, <laughs> yeah. cut it short. Really exciting. Tell us about the dates. Of the show. So we open tonight. Whoa. Tonight. It's a busy day. Uh, February the 20th, we open at 8 o'clock tonight. Mm-hmm. And then we run right through to March 1st. There are 15 shows in total and all at the 26 Berkeley Street. 26 Berkeley. So look up Canadian Stage and you'll find it. Yes. And we'll mention that again because I'm not ready to let you go just yet. <laughs> you mentioned you're very busy. How many performers? In this one, we have five, five uh, dancers and three live musicians. But in your your movement, as you call it, is is it a a, a crew group that in, is interchangeable? Is it we keep a t- core uh, very consistent, so okay. we have a core team, mm-hmm. and then depending on the project, we might pick up different people that we think are more well suited for for that piece. But there is a a core that we keep working with. Always indigenous? And backbone and trace. And some of them are and some of them aren't. Um, uh, Red Sky, not everybody is indigenous okay. who is on stage or works there. Um, we uh, strive for that. Uh, in contemporary uh, dance, it's, you know, contemporary dance world is a very small world. And then um, when we look at contemporary indigenous dance, it gets smaller. Uh, so I think, you know, this is one of the things I was trying to do at the Banff Center in part along many other arts when I worked there was to build up sort of the training, uh, having a training center for dancers and musicians or storytellers, whatever. But um, we're at a place where I think maybe in about 15 years or 10 years, we will ha- be able to say all dancers are indigenous. I, 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 um, to work at Red Sky doesn't mean everybody has to be Indigenous, though. Well, what do you look for when you're casting? Uh, a number of things. Uh, if you're talking about dancers, I'm looking for a very high level of um, physicality and training. Somebody um, who is not just suited in one genre, but can do different dance genres. Um, also somebody with an incredible... Um, um, relationship to music because ironically not all dancers have that kind of relationship to music where they can climb inside of the music as if the music is coming out of their body out of your body yes so it's not um not that's something um that's just i think through experience or sometimes people just have it really naturally or if they grew up in culture listening to music in a certain way they have it so true some cultures are are more musical than others i would argue yeah, I think I think all cultures are musical, but I think some, yeah, there are cultures that grow up where they're singing all the time and or they're around music every day. Like you know, when I think of even home, there's two sounds that I well three that I equate with home. One is the sound of a loon, ah uh, yes, the sound of a train going by in the distance, mm-hmm. and the tuning of a guitar. 
the tuning of do you play guitar i play very little Mm -hmm. but my brothers are way better guitar players and my sister than i am do you sing also i do i do yes everybody sings in my family yeah that's fun yes nice musical family yeah yeah it's great if you can get if you have relatives family that can sing together it's more fun yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm excited for um, this project. I'm so grateful to Canadian Stage for being a, a company in residence there for the past three years. We will be back there next year as well. Okay. The show. Um, so they've been wonderful to work with. I just wanted to add that if I had not said that. Yes. And where <laughs> else in Canada are you performing? Well, Trace is going, um, so we just came from Europe with Backbone. Oh, how so was So we were that? in Germany and Belgium and Poland and the Netherlands, five weeks. And um, it was very, very uh, full on, all over performing. Uh, did really, really well, standing ovation every single night. Fantastic. And uh, we're taking Trace to um, out east right after AF. I think we have five days off and then we take Trace to... Um, um, Moncton and Fredericton and New Brun- um, um, St. John's and a few other places. And then it goes to the United States in the fall. Oh, where in the U.S.? We're going to uh, Mondavi Center, so California, Stanford University. Um, so we're in California to start. Wow. And then we and we also going to be going to um, Ohio and New York. And we're going to Arizona as well. And one of the places we're going to be staying at is a dude ranch. A dude ranch. For two weeks. Two weeks at a dude. All kinds of imagery. Do you know what a dude ranch is? I'm not sure. (laughs) Place where there are a lot of dudes. No, a dude ranch is basically um, city slickers who want to be, you know, um, pretend that they're in sort of this ranch environment. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. That'll be fun. Definitely. Lots of observations. But it's a dance. But it's a whole dance kind of dude ranch. Oh, oh, all yeah. dancers. Yeah, we're going there to perform. Oh my goodness, that it's, sounds really <laughs> exciting. <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. You mentioned five days off, and then this current show AF. Yes. At Berkeley Stage mm-hmm. Theater in Toronto. It's just off King Street on Berkeley. And is five days enough time for a dancer to recover before going on to a next huge show? It's a good question. <laughs> the different show. Yes, it will be. Because we've done it. We've done Trace before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's that like to go through that kind of a of a show? How do you feel after the show? How do the da- <laughs> I always feel a little bit sad after a show, I have to say. I do. I don't know what it is. I always feel like, oh, and now people are going back and... Now we're going with, you know, I always feel a bit sad after a show, always. But I think that's a good a good thing. I mean, I feel elated, but I also feel a little bit like... Sad, bittersweet. Well, there was such heightened emotion yes. and physicality during the show, and then it's over, and it's like, hmm. Yeah, and then you were like forced to think about the next thing right away and sort of get on with it, and that's really exciting too. Yeah, maybe that's true in life. We go through a, a really happy experience... And we're all excited, and then we feel kind of down after. It's like going on vacation. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And you come back, and it's, oh. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I feel down. I just feel a little, like, bittersweet, like you say. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're thrilled to have you. One more time, let's talk about the name of the show, where the show's playing, where you can get tickets. AF. So AF stands for Anishinaabe Fire. 
We are at Canadian Stage, 26 Berkeley Street. Uh, please come and see us, Red Sky Performance. We would love to see you at the show, which is uh, dance, original dance, and live music. And uh, it we run from February 20th, which is opening tonight, until March 1st. And you can get tickets um, at Canadian Stage either online or there's a box office number as well. Sandra, it's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. And good luck. Thank you. Chimiguich. That was Sandra Laron, founder and artistic director of Red Sky Performance. After this, we'll be speaking with the director of a new documentary film, Hockey Mom. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Also, you might be listening to us on our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. Sego Ani, bonjour. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin, and this is 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and I am filling in today for David Moses. And my guest, my next guest, is Tiyama Alkamli. Tiyama is co-director of a new documentary film called Hockey Mom. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it's our pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Yes, I had a uh, look at the screener, like the pre-screener last night. I loved the film. Thank you. And so I'm going to get you to describe it. It was about a Syrian refugee who moves to Canada. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to get you to fill us in a little bit more on your own words. Sure. So the documentary actually follows the life of Fatma, who, as you just said, um, is a Syrian um, refugee. She's well, was. She's almost in the process of getting her citizenship now. She's been here for over four years. Um, yeah, so we basically, she's a single mom, and we follow her life and her son, Majd. We started filming when he was seven years old. Um, they were living with their sponsors, and basically we follow them as they build a new life for themselves here in Toronto. How did you find her? I mean, there were a lot of Syrian refugees. How did you find Fatma? Sure. So um, I actually co-direct the film with Andrew Moyer, and Andrew was actually in touch with an organization called Ready, Set, Play, um, and they support underprivileged kids to play sports. And through his contact in that organization, he had heard about Fatma. He had heard about a single mom from Syria living in her sponsor's basement, and her son was playing his first league of uh, Little League's hockey so, yeah, um, he we were already working on a film, on another film prior to that. So he contacted me. He said, hey, would you like to go meet Fatma together and work on this together? And I said, absolutely. And that's how I thought they were very interesting subjects. And we really got the story of what it might be like to be a refugee or any kind of immigrant. My parents were immigrants. And I know even when they were an immigrant, my mother would say there was no welcoming committee when we came. Like now it's better, even though it's still really hard, at least it's better. There are some support groups. Right, absolutely. So um, right now, the refugee system is basically split into two, one, which is still the standard like government assistance system. And the other system is the sponsorship model, which is um, where groups of five or community organizations come together, they raise money to bring a family and sponsor them for a year. 
And uh, yeah, it's definitely working, I think, much better because of that human connection, because you do have a community actually welcoming you. Um, They have a vested interest to see you succeed and you're not just lost on your own in the big bad city. And it seems like Fadma had excellent sponsors. They seem to be really there for her throughout this process. Oh, yeah. They're really a group of incredible people. And because also there's about nine of them, um, I think that also helps where, you know, one person can help with um, an English class. One person can help with picking Majda from school. So it's not, you know, it's kind of spread out across quite a few people. And each of them definitely took um, took it upon themselves to help Fatma in whatever way that they could. And she had extra challenges because she was separated from her husband, who didn't seem to be very supportive, at least during the part of the film that I saw. And her son was also having a lot of struggles as well and adapting to a new life here. And he had ADHD for a while. I don't know if this diagnosis still remains, but the doctor said he had gone through a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. So, right. So I think the problem was uh, Majd had grown up basically in a refugee camp. So he was about six or seven years old when they arrived in Canada and they had spent four years in the refugee camp before. Um, So as you can imagine, it's a totally unstructured, chaotic kind of life living in a tent for four years. And so when he arrived here, he had a lot of trouble adapting to a very structured, regimented kind of system the exact opposite of the life that he had just lived. Um, And obviously lots of residual trauma from just being in an environment that um, has a lot of people who've just fled from a war um, and the move to a whole new country and then his parents' separation. So all of these things obviously take a toll on a young boy. And uh, he was diagnosed with ADHD, but I think he is doing much better right now and not even, you know, taking his medication. Let's talk about the hockey factor. Sure. So Majd was on a hockey team? Yes, was and still is. Still is. So yeah. tell us about that. Uh, so he started playing hockey uh, in 2017, I believe, 17 or 18. Uh, and yeah it's it's been a big part of their lives definitely he's still playing he's getting a lot better um i think fatma really also enjoys the fact that he's playing hockey because it is such a you know iconic canadian thing and she just feels really proud that it's just another it's it's one thing that is helping him kind of integrate and fit in and um she takes a lot of pride in being a hockey mom so that's you know, really well, hard. That's great. And is she meeting other hockey moms? She can yes, at least yeah, make friends with. She is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to go with my niece because her son plays hockey. Still does. He's older now, though. He's in different rep teams, so they're always traveling around. But it was amazing the amount of kids who are on these hockey teams in Canada. Like the, they're from Oakville area, and these. The skating rings are just packed, one team after another after another. And and I would think, yeah, this is a whole subculture here where people get to know each other, families can support each other, 
is it's a commitment to be a hockey mom. Oh, absolutely. So I don't have any kids. I n- never really played hockey. So my introduction into hockey was also through um, the film. And we actually filmed a lot of hockey, although unfortunately, because of time restraints, not a lot of it made it into the film. But yeah, basically every week we were there. The and sometimes rink. and sometimes it would start at like seven in the morning, which means like the family had to be up at five. And I was calling these parents heroes, like really <laughs> to yeah. sacrifice each Saturday, you know, and, very and how, willingly. How does Fatma do it? Because she was going traveling around by bus. Right. So luckily, um, when she was living in the annex, the hockey arena was within like two minute walking distance. And now that she's um, she also lives very close to the arena. So it's like five minutes. She moved from Scarborough? No, she moved from the annex to Scarborough. And in Scarborough now, there is the arena is also very close to their house. Got it. Got it. Now, if as I was reading, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, Tiama, are also a refugee. Yes, so I am actually also from Syria, and I am a refugee. Tell us about your your story. Um, So my story is a little bit different than the average refugee story, I would say. Um, I grew up in, I mean, I didn't grow up in Syria. I left Syria when I was five. Uh, I grew up in Dubai, um, and that's where I spent um, my life until I was 17. And then I moved here to Canada to... Um, study and then I left and then obviously the Syrian um, revolution which then became a war happened and like many people in the world I had nowhere else to go Um, so I came back to Canada and yeah well well, welcome you're welcome here thank you that's so great and is your background film Yes, it is. So when I came to Canada to study, I studied cinema studies and drama at U of T. U of T? Yeah. Ah, okay, great. Is this your first film? This is my first mid-length doc. So I've made quite a few short docs, and this is the first length. Um, yeah. Okay. Has it debuted yet, or is going to debut March 1st? So yes, it's going to be on CBC TV uh, Sunday, March 1st at 9pm. And then after that, uh, you can catch it online on GEM, CBC GEM. Uh, on March 1st? Oh, yeah. no, after? Yeah, after 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 the premiere, I believe. So after 9pm that Sunday. Okay, that's exciting. How are you feeling? Yeah, very excited, as you can imagine. Uh, I mean, it's been over two years that we've been working on this. And um, you know, it's it's always very satisfying to see something come to a close. And well, I I think a lot of documentary filmmakers spend a lot of time at all the documentary film festivals, hoping to get their doc shown someplace like CBC. Right, of course. So we are you very bypass fortunate. that. Yeah, yeah. How did that work? Did you have a connection? Um. I mean, we we did know um, a few people at CBC. My again, my co-director Andrew, he had um, made one short with CBC before, um, so we just pitched them the idea, though, just like anybody else. And yeah, they were very, very much into it. Yeah, did you get any guidance on or input from anyone on the film? There's so much editing choices to be made. We always call it. In journalism, when if because I've done 
television, a little bit of television journalism too. And we call it killing puppies when you have all this good footage and you can only choose so many. We, we call it killing, which is a terrible, right. terrible. We call it killing your darlings. That's better. Killing yeah. your darlings. Thank you. <laughs> industry, industry vocabulary, please don't quote me. <laughs> yes. So definitely that was a very difficult process because we had a... Uh, we had a lot of material. We had a lot of very compelling material. We had a lot of different angles. So there was a hockey angle. There was the sponsors. A lot of the sponsors didn't make it into the film because of the time restraints. Um, a lot of other, you know, interesting situations we couldn't put in because it didn't really serve the plot of the film. Um, there's only so much you can do in 45 minutes, right? So, um Definitely, we had to kill a lot of darlings. A lot of darlings. And I don't think the general public, I'm just generalizing, who watch even even a news report that a reporter did a little two-minute feature on, how much went into that? Oh, yeah. How, it's a lot of footage, a lot of decision-making, a lot of retakes, a lot of cutting. Like Just to get one shot, you might want to do it in five different directions. Absolutely. You can you can spend an entire week editing a two minute video um, because there's just so much creative choice and so many decisions to be made on every single cut. Um, and even where to cut, like it's really precise. Yeah. Even two seconds makes a difference. Absolutely. Someone's eyes looked a certain way. You want to catch that, that one second. Mm -hmm. I've done a lot of background acting on films in the past. So, yeah, and, and I, I was mesmerized by it how many shots went into one shot. Right. <laughs> what, what that one thing we see on film was filmed from about eight directions right. over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what you end up doing, especially with docs, and especially with this kind of doc where um, a lot of it is observational, so you're just following life as it happens. You do have to be careful not to end up in a situation where you have you know hundreds of hours of footage um, to wade through. So what was the time span from start? Um, so we started filming uh, with Fatma and Majd at, in 2018, um, the end of 2017. So it's about two years. Two years. Yeah. And it's amazing that she was open to all of this. Yeah. Not everyone's going to go, yeah, for the next two years, you can follow me around with a camera. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's definitely a very courageous woman. And she's also she's a very lovely social person. So she really welcomed us um, to her home. Uh, but it did take, you know, a little while for her to obviously be comfortable with us. Because also people are not exactly sure of what they're signing up for when they say yes. Sure. To be in a documentary film, especially this kind of film where it's not just a talking head interviews and uh, very in a very structured kind of form. Um, so, yeah, like they don't really know that we're going to be there filming you as you're cooking or as you're going to sleep or as, you know. And so. we'll need 10 shots, 10 angles. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And ask you to do it again. Yeah. So she was very gracious, though, throughout the whole experience. Is she working now? She's still looking um, for work. She's going on a lot of job interviews. Oh, good. Um, so definitely there's a lot of different prospects. 
in the works. Acting, maybe? Yeah, why not? <laughs> She's a lot of experience now. Yeah. You better just sign up for background acting. Be a good idea, you know? Okay, let it Yeah, go. well, that's exciting. So once again, the film is called Hockey Mom. I'm talking to Tiama Alkamli, the co-director of the film. And one more time, where and when can we see Hockey Mom? So you can see Hockey Mom on CBC TV Sunday, March 1st at 9 p.m. And after that, you can catch it on GEM. Perfect. And before I let you go, what's your next project? So right now I have a few projects in development. Um, I'm writing my uh, fiction film debut. um, And hopefully that's something that I'll be able to share with you soon. You can't tell us in general what it's about at this point? Uh, So it's a coming of age story uh, of an 11-year-old girl. Oh, very nice. Yeah. That's that's nice. Yeah. Well, based on what I saw here, I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. And you have a bright and long career ahead of you. Thank you so much. Thank yes. you for having me. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm speaking with Tiana Alkamli, co-director of the new documentary film, Hockey Mom. I'm Kathy Sabokin. And in a moment, I'll be back with D.T. Cochran. He's a Toronto-based economic researcher and analyst. And we're going to Dive into the rail blockades and their effect on the economy. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also hear us on the Radio Player Canada app and our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in today for David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth. And my next guest is D.T. Cochran. He's a Peterborough-based economic researcher and analyst. And we are going to weigh in on the rail blockades and the effect on the economy and a couple of other things. Hello, D.T. Hi. Thank you for coming on the show today. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yes. Well, there's a lot going on regarding these rail blockades, as we all know. And I was reading an article that you wrote. It was very interesting. And I was just reading, and this kind of struck me, how this refusal to comply with court injunctions and the use of legal expertise to fight them pose major challenges for Canadian businesses. Like, I, we know that. We get that. It's a simple question, but how would you describe these court injunctions? Like, what exactly does that mean? So the the court injunction is uh, a fairly formal legal instrument. Um, I think they're they're given out fairly routinely. Um, It's when two parties have some sort of disagreement and they seek recourse uh, in the courts in order to kind of separate them and give uh, a clear passage for one of the parties over the other. So uh, in the case of the Wet'suwet'en, they had set up these, these blockades, they'd evicted uh, coastal gas link workers from their territory said, you cannot come build this pipeline, put up these blockades to, to physically stop them. Coastal gas link went to the BC Supreme Court for an injunction against um, the blockaders said, we want a ruling that they have to remove these, these blockades and allow our workers in. Um, the court ruled in their favor. And then now that the law is on the side of Coastal GasLink, the RCMP can be deployed to go and actually enforce the, the injunction. Um, but this gets more complicated. We interviewed a lawyer the other day who, who was a specialist in 
an ab- Aboriginal law, she says. And she says that as far as the Wet'suwet'en are concerned, they are not breaking the law because they feel it's their land. It's unceded territory. Feel it, it is their land, so they have a right to tell people to stay off of it. Absolutely. And so that is the source of uncertainty, which is what I was, which is what I was writing about. So injunctions are used by corporations to try to get back a degree of certainty for the activities that they want to perform. So if we, if we step away from, from the Wet'suwet'en case uh, and move, say, to the lockout uh, at the co-op refinery in Regina, where workers were stopping all, um, all trucks from entering into the refinery, the co-op sought an injunction in order to make them stop doing that because it was harming, obviously, their bottom line, because this is cutting into their, their revenue. They're not able to actually ship uh, their product and make the revenue from that. So in the case of corporations operating on Indigenous territories, there are all of these questions about who actually has title to the land, who actually has jurisdiction, whose laws are actually relevant. And so corporations have been using injunctions basically as a stopgap measure to try to restore some certainty back into their activities. So when uh, Indigenous communities are saying, hey, you're operating on our land illegally, you don't have our permission to do so. We have jurisdiction. We have title. We have the rights to say who does and does not operate on these lands. Then the corporations are put into a, a very difficult position and their future profits are called into question. And so the injunction is a means to bring some certainty back into that. They're effectively seeking uh, recourse strictly from the Canadian government whom they've long understood to have rights and title to the entirety of the land that we call Canada. And it's becoming increasingly clear that no large pockets of this territory, potentially the entire thing has underlying Aboriginal title. And so now the question becomes who issues this permission for corporations to operate on the land? And I understand that in Indigenous lands in Canada make up 0.2% of all of the land in the country. So that would, that, that's, so that's a calculation done by uh, the late great scholar and Indigenous leader. Uh, and, and the reserves of Canada comprise 0.2%. And that's what he recognized that that's basically what Canada had left to uh, Indigenous uh, communities to be their economic land base. Okay, well, that's so not from, not much. Why do we have to build no. on that land? Yeah, well, um, because the Canadian state has just um, systematically uh, contravened its own treaties, which were always intended to be land-sharing agreements, um, and read the treaties in an incredibly punitive way. Um, probably the most uh, egregious example being the past system where uh, Indigenous populations were forced onto reserve and needed permission to leave them. Um, and I think many Canadian settlers misunderstand what the treaties were, were meant to say um, and what kind of rights they, they afforded to the two entities signing, signing the treaty. They thought that 
this was an agreement for Indigenous people to settle onto reserves and just operate on reserves while the rest of the land base would be for them. Um, I really think it takes just a moment of thought to recognize how ridiculous that must be um, and how different the interpretation and understanding of the treaties was from the side of the, of the Indigenous people. And then when you look in the case of most of BC, it's not even treaty land. So there are huge questions in need of being resolved. Um, the Delgamuk decision in 1997 should have prompted the Canadian government to say, look, we are in an incredibly uncertain space with respect to who has rights and title, who has jurisdiction, and we need to resolve this but they have just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And they've effectively created the crisis that we have today. Sounds like it. And I am sure that the Indigenous leaders know this. And that's why they're fighting. Yeah. And, and so one of the other things that I, I try to say to um, you know, my, my fellow settlers, many of whom feel upset about, about what is happening, about the blockade, who uh, I would say for the most part don't understand um, what the... Uh, legal history, the political history, uh, the economic and the cultural history of the relationship between settler society and Indigenous people is that, that yeah, there, there are differences of opinion that exist within Indigenous communities. And the, the last thing that, that the Canadian government should be doing in such a situation is imposing on those communities over which there is a lot of disagreement. So perhaps among the Wet'suwet'en, there is disagreement about what the relationship with coastal gasling should look like, but that's for them to decide. It's not for Canada to, to privilege one side over the other or to say, well, look, there's disagreement, so therefore we still will just force this on them. The, the basic fact of the matter is Canada has no jurisdiction over that territory. Our courts have no jurisdiction over that territory. The RCMP is being sent in with no legitimacy on those lands. It's an illegitimate and an illegal incursion into another nation's territory. We wouldn't accept it if the United States was coming across our border, and the Wet'suwet'en shouldn't accept it with the RCMP coming across their border. Whatever the internal um, discussion to be had is, that's for them them to perform. Well, the RCMP this morning did say that they have offered to leave that outpost on the wet Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC. Hopefully that will lead to the barricades coming down. But do you think that's a good start? Or do, is, it, yeah. is it enough? Like, are we, we need to talk. That's what I'm hearing. It's a, it's a great start. Um, the Wet'suwet'en were very clear about what the First condition to even speak. It's very heartening to see that uh, those steps are being taken, that the RCMP has said that they will withdraw um, so that that can allow this dialogue to happen. I'm continually shocked at the, the, the patience of Indigenous leadership with Canada's, uh, you know, century and a half plus of contravening the agreements that we have signed with them, um, and we're continuing to see it today. Although the blockades are making a lot of people upset, it really is 150 years in the making. It's time that Canada be accountable for 
having systematically undermined uh, indigenous economies in favor of our own. These were friendship treaties. These were agreements to share the land. Let's get back to the spirit of those agreements and figure out what that actually looks like and stop being bullies. I read a very interesting a tidbit on your in your article about the Yellowhead Yellowhead Institute documenting the use of injunctions by corporations. And according to research, corporations are awarded injunctions against First Nations in 76% of cases, but First Nations are awarded injunctions against corporations in only 19% of cases. That seems a bit off. Yes, and I think um and I think it's because of the 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 way that the the balance of harm one of the tests for an injunction the way that it gets measured that on the the side of the corporations we have these financial metrics coastal gasoline can say every day that we're delayed costs us this amount of money the Wet'suwet'en don't have the same kind of metric uh, to apply in making their case because their relationship with this land is not uh, reducible to dollars and cents. There might be some, um, some financial processes for them that are attached to this, but it exceeds that. And the courts are frankly not equipped to try to evaluate this balance of harm um, when they've adopted really um, de facto economic metrics in order to determine who is going to bear the greater harm. And that speaks to larger because there is this uh, reflexive use of economic thinking, the, the prioritization of financial metrics over any other type of measure or consideration. And that is really a deeper problem associated with um, our capitalist society. And probably hard for people to understand and digest if they're hearing about job layoffs at Via Rail, for example, and farmers not getting the goods that they need, manufacturing being a dent in manufacturing, etc. So it's hard to understand or feel sympathetic, empathetic toward, toward a certain group. Yeah, there, there, it's just so much more immediate that this, the, the efforts that they are taking to try to protect um, their way of life and even more so just their basic rights, uh, it's way easier to, to feel the, the negative impact on those who are you know, losing, their, losing their jobs. And as far as the courts are concerned, way easier to make sense of the corporation that can say, this is going to cost us tens of millions of dollars. It's a lot harder to make sense of the Wet'suwet'en saying, well, first, you have um, consistently undermined our ability to um, live the way that we want to live, to continue to practice the customs of land stewardship, the relationship with the land, um, and then to to try to we, we want to continue to value we we value a certain relationship with the land and is completely in contravention of that. That's at least what some Soatin are saying. Um, and again, 
there might be a, an internal discussion for them to have. It's not for me as a settler or for the settler government to then impose upon them. And it is definitely not for the courts to make any ruling when they have no jurisdiction in those lands. Well, what do you think the government needs to do in, in terms of bridging this particular issue? Perhaps getting the, the blockades to stop, the protesters? Um, I mean, they, they need to listen to the people on, on the other side, and they need to respect their, their rights and, and jurisdiction. They need to resolve these unresolved questions. And that's, that's a, big, it's a big thing to take on, but they have uh, avoided doing it for far too long. Um, and really, they only have themselves to blame for the situation they have found themselves in. I'm not a politician. I'm not a, a policy analyst. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what the, the specific legal steps required might be, but I am a human being. And I think just sitting down and talking to the, the nations that we share these lands with needs to be the first step. We also need a lot more education about what the treaty relationship actually was, what it means for lands to be untreated, um, and how do we get back to the original intent of, say, the two-row wampum, which was explicitly a land-sharing agreement. Two people whose economies, whose cultures, whose societies can coexist on this land, can travel side by side, and can have a relationship with each other that should be mutually beneficial. Instead of, as I grew up thinking, as most settlers believe, that treaties were somehow land giveaway agreements, that it was indigenous people saying, oh, you want the land? Here you go. You take it. We will accept these tiny parcels. Well, I would say when I grew up, we had no education on this whatsoever. And I think that's part of the problem as well in terms of Canadians understanding, us settlers understanding the past, what really happened, you know, what were these treaties, we, you know, what's going on here. I think, I think we all need more education on this whole issue. Yeah, when, when I was growing up, it was just starting to come into, into my schools when I was they just started to offer what at the time was called Native Studies. Um, I, I don't recall a lot of what the content was. Uh, I think it was mostly kind of feel-good ideas about how we can all sort of get along, some sense that uh, Indigenous history is part of Canadian history. And the story is just, in some ways, much more complex than that, and in some ways, much simpler than that. And the simpler side of it is that Canada has systematically prioritized its own economy and the well-being of settlers over Indigenous economies and the well-being of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous nations. Yes, even when I mention to people that I work for an Indigenous-owned radio station, I get all kinds of comments. And I say, yeah, we play 25% of our music an hour is by Indigenous artists. And they have all kinds of ideas, fantasies of what that means. I'm like, well, they, they're... They play hip hop, you know. They're like current current music, like <laughs> right. You right. know, there's just what, like a real disconnect there. Well, and I, I think I think if another side to kind of the settler perspective on it is that 
for there to be kind of quote unquote legitimate indigenous cultures, they need to be living on the land as they had before Europeans arrived. And that's just a completely ludicrous way of understanding any kind of society. They are societies like every other type of society, and they have their own histories. But um, just like when we signed the treaties, the scale of industrial extraction had never occurred to um, either side making these agreements. Uh, and we have now come to live in a, a settler society that has these large-scale industrial undertakings, their societies also have uh, the, the right to technologically evolve. It doesn't mean that, as Pierre Trudeau actually said quite explicitly, that because they're no longer living the way that um, in certain romantic settler ideas, that they have no right to claim um, their own their own rights um, and their own their own capacity to determine the future trajectory of their communities. Well, DT, thank you so very much. You've you've been really enlightening, and we really appreciate all of your your insights and comments. Thank you. Thank you. I I, I feel like maybe I departed a little bit from my lane, which is trying to stay on the economic aspect of it. But it was great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's, DT Cochran is in economic researcher and analyst, and you're listening to 106.5 LMNFM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Kathy Sibokin, and this is Moment of Truth. <laughs>